They say banks are boring, credit unions are dull. We don't agree, we love them all. Except for the big banks and neos who take a market share, make consumers blue. Need a fresh perspective, new direction. Take back banking and make some connections. If you feel stuck, it's not your fault. Here's an idea, try thinking outside the vault. I'm your host, Zach Garber, and this is uh, Thinking Outside the Vault, the Cassandra podcast. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to James McGuire and our inaugural episode of the Compliance Pagoda. James, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do here at Cassandra? Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Zach. Absolutely. Uh, my, name, my name is James McGuire. I am the Compliance Manager here at Cassandra, and my job is pretty much to operate within the compliance realm and make sure that we are following all of the rules and regulations that are put forth in the laws and the statutes, um, both the federal level and at the state level. And uh, something I really enjoy doing. It's something that I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know when it comes to compliance, there's a sort of a lot of hesitation initially. Um, It it just seems like people in glasses uh, poured over really large books, just sort of studying nonstop. And for some reason, I kind of geek out about it and I really like it. So one of the things that I really try to do in my role is to dispel sort of that, oh, I don't want to touch that kind of uh, attitude surrounding compliance and make it a little bit more accessible because the more people care about it and the more people show interest in the field, uh, the more compliance is actually a focus and the more everything gets followed correctly. So. That's, that's sort of my approach. Yeah, I know. And that m- reminds me of a story that I wanted to tell, which is uh, we do this uh, kind of a seminar thing for clients or prospective clients called BTAN, um, which is just kind of a get to know you thing. And uh, I was attending one of these as a new employee at Casasa and was watching Patrick Laughlin uh, give his presentation. And like the first slide says compliance rocks. And it was the most high energy, uh, it might've been the most high energy presentation of like the whole, the whole seminar, or at least, I mean, given the subject matter. And I was so impressed by this, uh, by this attitude that compliance is something that we can really make significant and, and that it doesn't, we can kind of lessen the burden of this, you know, at Casasa's role, but but just that like this attitude towards compliance can make it better for everybody. And that's really, uh, if listeners may have noticed, I called this compliance pagoda, not compliance corner, because uh, I really didn't like the idea of sit, like putting compliance in a corner. That seemed the opposite of what we're trying to do here, what James and I uh, are going to be talking with you about over um, over the series. And so a pagoda, if you don't know, is this multi-tiered building uh, that's actually designed to garner like respect and attention. And I felt like that was a much more fitting title, uh, you know, and in keeping with this idea that like compliance rocks, like let's let's make it awesome. <laughs> uh, so with that, I am super excited to have James on the podcast and uh, I, he has to put together some excellent content. Uh, so we're going to jump in. Uh, a little kind of drill down into this idea of what is compliance and why do we care about it? 
Exactly. So first off, uh, compliance rocks. As you mentioned, that is sort of our slogan here when it comes to compliance at Kasasa. It's sort of a mantra that we want to make sure that everyone is sort of up on and, and kind of the first thought, the initial kickoff thought when we do get into compliance issues, it just sort of dispels any of the tension or sort of any of the worry about what compliance is? Why is the compliance person in the room? Did I do something wrong? <laughs> if, every, if, if everybody just sort of has this universal understanding of compliance rocks, it's great to make sure that we're following the law. And we, we are confident in the fact that we are. Now let's go from there and look at the future, look at things we can improve, look at things you know, potentially that, that we might need to shore up. Uh, as to, determine risk, things like that, things of that nature. Um, that all becomes a lot easier once that initial notion is put in place. So after we proceed from the fundamental premise that compliance rocks, um, <laughs> you know, we might ask ourselves, what, what is compliance? What is this thing that rocks? Is it, you know, who knows what it is, right? So well, essentially... What is the difference between compliance and legal? Um, I mean, that's something that I certainly, like if you'd asked me that, I would have been... I yeah, and like, oh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so a lot of people think that compliance issues and legal issues are are one and the same, and it's you know you can ask legal folks about compliance, and you can ask compliance folks about legal issues, and there is some overlap to some extent. But uh, an interesting thing about compliance is it, it's almost counterintuitive in that it, it's almost easiest to define what compliance is by explaining what it's not. Okay, and so the, the sort of the first step in that is to differentiate between compliance and legal issues. So the way I like to phrase it, just really simply, is when you're talking about compliance issues, you're worried about upsetting Uncle Sam. You're worried about upsetting the government, really. So compliance is following the the written statutes, regulations, and state and local laws that are on the books. Um, you really want to be thinking about the government as being Sort of, if you if you picture, you know, uh, one of those legal shows during the daytime, right? Judge Judy or something <laughs> like that, and you've got like the plaintiff and the defendant. Well, you know, on one side you would have you, and then on the other side, in this case, when you're talking about compliance, it would be the government. Um, whereas when you're talking about a legal matter or a legal concern, what you're for the most part, what you're really worried about there is you and some other person or some other business. So, so it's really more of an adversarial issue. Um, gotcha. Usually when we're talking about financial institution issues like we do here at Casasa, mostly uh, when we're talking about legal issues, it's really going to be contract stuff. So if there's something in a contract that's not followed correctly or the contract wasn't drafted well enough and didn't address this crazy scenario that happened and sort of made everything blow up in everyone's face, how, you know, how do we address that situation? That's going to be more legal because you're going to have both parties to the contract. Uh, gotcha. And that's really what's going to be at issue. So, so that's kind of the difference between what is compliance and what is legal. Um, as I mentioned, there is some overlap. Uh, so you, you know, with, with compliance, uh, there are laws that say that you can sue another individual if uh, certain things aren't followed or laws that says that the government can actually sue you if certain things aren't followed. So there's, there's both criminal and civil, civil aspects. So there's some blending there, essentially. But, uh, gotcha. but, but um, yeah, so uh, sort of the second step in differentiating. So what isn't compliance uh, is something called safety and soundness, which is I've a term, this term and, 
And yeah. it seemed really deliberate and also something I didn't know. <laughs> what, yeah. what is this thing? <laughs> yeah. So, so again, compliance, we're talking about following the laws on the books. Safety and soundness, which really is a, is a banking term. Um, I think it might be in other contexts. But when you're talking about banking, you're really talking about making sure that a, a financial institution or FI uh, is strong and is doing the right thing and is managing its risk appropriately. Uh, you know, you you can have, okay. a, a, say, a bank or a credit union who does all of the loans to the letter of the law, uh, does everything, every, everything is underwritten correctly, everything's disclosed correctly, and it's great. But who are they lending money to? Are they lending money to a bunch of, for lack of a better word, bums who, who don't have any money and, and clearly can't repay the loan? Um, so in that case, all these loans are going to default. Obviously, that's going to put the bank in a jeopardizing position which is potentially going to harm the people who deposit money at that bank. So when you're talking about things like behavior and engaging risk, that's more of a safety and soundness thing. Um, whereas compliance, again, you're really just concerned with following the law. Did they underwrite it correctly as the law requires uh, you know, a loan or something like that? Did they open the deposit account and give the correct truth and savings disclosures? Those kinds okay. of things. Yeah. Could so I, would, it, would it be safe to say that a institution could be uh, compliant and be unsafe and unsound. Like, is that absolutely okay? Yeah, you could have that scenario, and the re the reverse is true as well. You could have an institution that only lends to very wealthy people, but all those wealthy people have happen to be one particular race and one particular ethnicity and what have you. So that violates fair lending. So that's a compliance issue. So okay, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's an example. Yeah, so you can have one or the other. Okay. Um, and then, um, so it seems to me like, I, I, as a new, I feel like I'm a bit of a newcomer. I, I, you know, I've been working at Kisasa for four years, but I still talk about myself like a newcomer to this. And I think given that a lot of institutions have been around 100 years and, and a lot of people working there have, you know, maybe been, been there their whole careers, I think that's probably fair to say. So I often approach these questions uh, with a learning posture, right? Right. Um, I have learned just how big a deal, uh, this compliance thing is like how much examiners are respected and maybe, maybe feared a little right. bit. Oh, what's the, why, why, uh, this attitude of, of kind of anxiety around compliance? Yeah. So, um, when, when sort of going back to earlier, why do we need compliance rocks? Why is there this anxiety when the compliance person walks into the room? Uh, really I'll, I'll sort of tackle this from a, from a financial institution perspective, as opposed to sort of a third party vendor perspective. Yeah, I think or, that's great. That's a good, good um, way to so, do it. I mean, that's, you know, not, the listener hopefully is, is coming from that perspective. So. Yeah. So, so let's say you're a financial institution, bank or credit union, why you really care about compliance Number one, and this is absolutely going to be the reason that the uh, that your uh, upper management and your board of directors is going to care about, and that's money, <laughs> the almighty dollar. So when you talk about compliance violations, this is the case where someone from Washington or a local field office can come into your institution. They can have in their minds what they want to look for in the law. They can find it wrong at your institution, and then they can just start counting. And every time they count, depending on the regulation, that's a lot of money that it's going to cost your institution if they you know, cite those violations as findings in their examination. So let's say you forgot to send out periodic statements on, a, on an open loan. 
So that, that's a regulatory requirement under the Truth in Lending Act. So for every single one of the months that you didn't send out a statement, for every single one of your customers, is potentially you're talking about like $5,000 or so pop. And that, you know, that adds up over time, clearly. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Was that like, <laughs> oh, you like, vi- like the, the scope, the whole scope of the violation is, is one, one fine. But no, like you, you, it can get really granular is what you're saying. Yeah, it can get really granular and really expensive in a hurry. Uh, in fact, okay. um, we'll, we'll sort of discuss kind of recent compliance news in a sec. And, and there's an example in there where um, you can see how a, a real slight compliance violation costs a, a big bank a lot of money uh, recently. So it really can okay. add up. Um, another reason uh, why compliance is so important, and, and this is really uh, important for sort of newer banks, you know, de novo banks or newer credit unions, uh, and that's the reputation in the industry. So a lot of time, you know, these consent orders, if they're bad, they become public. Uh, and so a lot of this information sort of gets out into the public. Um, things like, um, you know, uh, potential mergers, if, if maybe you want to acquire another bank, but you, you are under a consent order or an MOU. Uh, okay, can I stop you for a second? Yeah. Again, coming from the edit, uh, the... No you know, the, the mindset of a learner, like, what is a consent order? That that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's <laughs> okay. It, 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 yeah, th- thank you for correcting me. And I, you know, I apologize. The compliance. No, no, not correcting at all. I'm just like, <laughs> there may be people listening who understand immediately what you mean. Totally. Um, yeah. You know, but I don't. So yeah, I'm ask those questions. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I mean, a consent order is basically uh, if you know if uh, in the course of investigating your bank for alleged violations. Uh, one of the regulatory agencies, um, you know, the, the findings are significant enough, then they are going to uh, essentially file this consent order in court against your institution, and you're going to have to end okay. up paying more money. So it's basically like a judgment. You want to think of it? Gotcha. It's like the, the the traffic ticket to the yeah. banking or the financial institutions traffic violation. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's an alternative okay. traffic ticket. Yeah, and, and as a brief aside, you know, as we go through here. Um, uh, compliance is such an insular uh, industry that for a lot of times for folks who are not in it day to day, you know, they can kind of see past a lot of these simple things. So I appreciate you calling that out. Yeah. So so going into other reasons why we care about compliance, it doesn't just stop with money and reputation. There's also an issue of I- impression with your regulators. So not just how you look among your peers, but how you how good you look to the regulators. Uh, if you want to do a merger, like I said, let's say you even convince a smaller bank that you are a good bank to acquire them, uh, or you know you as a credit union are are solid enough to acquire a local uh, uh, community bank or something. The regulator still has to sign off on that, so mm. uh, they have to sign off on that merger. So if you are not really following things correctly, if you don't have enough credit under the Community Reinvestment Act, if you're not in good enough favor with the regulators, then they're not going to approve those mergers. Also, opening additional branches, opening loan production offices, all those things, they need to get okayed by your regulator. So if you are in the doghouse with the regulator, uh, it's really going to make things hard for you. Um, So the the growth aspect... Uh, like if, if an institution is looking to grow or do some of these things, expand their, you know, their territory there, it's not like just, you know, another business is like, great, we have new customers. It sounds like there's really an aspect where you, you need approval for some of these really fundamental things, yeah. I mean, like opening a new branch. I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. So 
uh, a lot of folks, you, there's kind of a common impression that that financial institutions, banks, credit unions, they have a uh, sort of the ability to just, based on how much money they have, they can just take over the world, right? Uh, and <laughs> luckily, it's not that dire. There actually are checks in place, and there there are stops along the way for uh, regulators to approve or deny certain decisions to expand. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, that, I mean, that actually answers a question I've wondered, you know, for, for sure. Like I said, uh, you know, what, what is this, this awe and respect that people have for examiners, you know, this obviously comes from, you know, some, there's something really significant about this, but you know, I wouldn't have, it, it's hard to see all that as an outsider, yeah. you know, or somebody who's new to the industry. So I appreciate you going into that. Sure thing. Um, Cool. Well, so let's uh, let's cover some of the recent news that you were telling me about. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting segment for us to do. Yeah, yeah. So, as as a part of this sort of uh, deal coming going forward, I, I think it's really important to sort of touch on the news in compliance. A lot of times, in the compliance world, especially, we get focused on these really big issues, these shiny objects, and we let kind of the the smaller things maybe slip through the cracks. So to okay. kind of do these periodic sort of news segment updates, I think is a good idea. So uh, we'll start off. Um, so overall, it's actually been pretty quiet on the compliance front as far as proposing new rules and regulations. It's, it hasn't been, you know, really when we saw Dodd-Frank happen after the, the financial crisis and sort of the fallout of that, those years were really, really busy. Regulations were coming fast and furious, lots of proposed rules, lots of comments, Lots of changes, lots of interpretations, and really since I would say November of De- or December of last year, it's kind of died down. Um, it could be the current administration, okay. but really, what it, the current framework is right now is just following the rules that are already in place, which is a very good thing. Uh, yeah, compliance professionals definitely, I feel like, are more uh, playing defense as opposed to playing offense. If that makes any sense. Okay. Lately. Yeah, I think so. Because everything. I mean, like that's it's it's just about like every there isn't a lot of environmental stuff coming in, meaning that the compliance environment, and so you just are trying to sort of keep things running smoothly and not end up in in bad territory, right? Right, exactly. And it also gives compliance okay. professionals an opportunity to sort of catch up and catch their breath, uh, especially from a lot of the more confusing topics like HUMDA, like TRID, like the loan originator compensation rules those kinds of things. So um, there is some chatter actually about reforming a lot of those things. Uh, A lot of the agencies have sort of proposed here and there piecemeal. um, Okay, we're going to reform the definition of qualified mortgage under Reg Z. We're going to take a look at possibly reforming the TRID rule. Um, So a lot of these things, and I know you you, did, this probably sounds like alien language, all these things I'm throwing out. (laughs) Basically, well, I'm going to let you kind of decide. Like, yeah. uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about CRA, and I was going to ask you to explain that. But uh, yeah, you know, we can use discretion about like, are we going to, you know, spell out each acronym or whatever? I mean, yeah, and I, and I don't, yeah. you know, I I I think I'm just throwing it out there to say basically they're talking about reforming these things. I don't think we need to get into the degree here, but um, but, okay. but yeah, so there's some chatter about that. You you just mentioned CRA, so that that's a really big one. CRA uh, for those who are sort of uninitiated into that maze. Uh, it, it's the Community Reinvestment Act. It is. A, okay, a, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a very important piece of legislation that was passed, I believe, in the 70s. 
Um, initially, it was focused towards sort of uh, expounding or extending the Civil Rights Act. Uh, so, um, you know, a lot of just correcting a lot of the discrimination in small local communities, actually all communities. Um, okay. Essentially, what it does is it gives financial institutions are actually we're talking about banks. I, I should mention the CRA technically does not apply to credit unions. So. Um, okay. Yeah, oh. that's a great distinction. Okay. It's, uh, it's always uh, it's always interesting to see where those lines are drawn about you know which thing applies to which type of institution. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So so when you're talking about banks, so what the CRA does is it basically gives banks brownie points depending on how much banking activity they do in their local community, uh, specifically towards moderate and low income subsets of their community. Um, by brown, okay. so kind of like maybe underbanked or or unbanked people might might edge into that category, or, or are those even different things? Potentially, yeah, they they could be. Okay, it's possible that you could be underbanked even if you're rich and you just hide all your money under your mattress or something. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not. It's it's. I mean, it's there's less of those folks I think now just because of the realities of modern life. But um, it, it's possible they could be distinct. But uh, really, um, what those brownie points would enable a bank to do is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, possibly do a merger uh, a lot easier, open open more branches in other other areas, uh, open loan production offices in other areas, all those things that sort of need regulatory approval when you build up those brownie points because you're doing banking activity to sort of needy individuals in your community. That's really going to help you sort of expand your business. So that's why. okay. So you say there's possibly some reform coming to to this piece of legislation. What is there is you know, so what's the shape of that? So we could probably do a whole podcast on just this, but I I don't want to. Okay, well maybe you know, listeners, if uh, <laughs> listeners, if you want to hear a whole podcast about uh, what's happening in Community Re- uh, Reinvestment Act, uh, let us know. Uh, we'll, we'll have information at the end of the show and, and shoot us a message, and and we'll know that want to focus on that later but uh what's the top level stuff? so top level essentially uh, when uh, the, the realities of modern banking uh in a lot of ways don't fit with the framework of, of the cra you know when the cra was passed banking happened at the branch everybody we didn't have the technology to facilitate something like banking online there was telephone banking mm-hmm. but it was terrible so everybody had to go into the branch you had to be a part of the community both as a consumer or a you know a, a customer of the bank and the bank itself, it was a purely mm-hmm. transaction. Now we have people doing online banking only. Some banks, you know, you open up your account and online, and you never go into the branch a single time. Uh, that what that does is, if a bank does a lot of banking for low and moderate income individuals, and it's only done online. And some of those individuals don't happen to live in the bank's assessment area. It's very hard, if not impossible, for the bank to get those brownie points to get the credit for helping okay. low-moderate income individuals because purely because they don't live close to where the physical branch is. When that, gotcha. And, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, when really that doesn't necessarily matter for the consumer as much. So. Because of that, there's been a big push uh, by the OCC and FDIC to essentially incorporate a broader net under the CRA. So 
expand the definition of what a quote unquote assessment area is to capture some of those maybe online banking folks. Now, over at the Fed, they take a completely different approach. Rather than change anything to do with the assessment area, what they really want to focus on at the Federal Reserve is changing the tests that you need to qualify for CRA credit because mm. the tests are very murky and ambiguous and subjective in a lot of ways. So essentially what's happening is you have the OCC and FDIC agencies on one side and then the Federal Reserve Agency on the other side and they're kind of talking past each other on this issue. And why that's, okay. why that's really unfortunate is some banks are regulated by the OCC, FDIC, some banks are regulated by the Federal Reserve. And so if each agency passes different regulation, then there's going to be different standards and there's going to be kind of this separated enforcement and re and regulation. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, we, we started talking about this and I thought, oh, this sounds good. It sounds like it might get easier for yeah. an institution, you know, for banks to get these brownie points. And then like suddenly that that turns into like, oh, this this might actually become really difficult. <laughs> yeah. And th there's a lot of political uh issues behind the CRA reform as well. Uh, a lot of folks, especially Representative Maxine Waters in the House, uh, are there, they seem to be very against reforming CRA in a way that would expand assessment area like the OCC wants to do, kind of more in line with what the Fed wants to do. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I'll just wrap this up by saying OCC, FDIC have put out a proposed rule. The comment is, you are allowed to comment on that rule right now. If you just go to federalregister.gov and then in the search box type CRA, um, then the rule will pop up and, and you can see the button to su submit a comment if you want to do that. Uh, okay, so now would be the time. Like if yeah. you had a strong feeling about this, like it needs to be made now. Yeah, now is the window. You can read the proposed rule and what's in it. And if you don't like it or you do like it, you can comment appropriately. Um, the, okay. the Federal Reserve still hasn't put forward their rule yet. They're, they've kind of been giving speeches and you know, giving vague, dropping hints here and there about what they're going to do, but nobody really knows yet. So, gotcha. um, so yeah, so, so that's kind of a big issue actually that, that is on the table right now is CRA reform. Um, a couple of little things happened last week that I'll just mention real quick. Uh, okay. first of all, the Consumer Financial Prote Protection Bureau or CFPB, uh, they came out with, um, th they're going to start issuing what they call compliance aids which they say are going to be hmm. yeah, helpful guides to help sort of the lay person or maybe someone who's new to compliance understand tricky compliance issues better. Uh, that sounds, okay. sounds really great. I kind of uh, am a little hesitant about it just because I feel like um, that agency in particular, we've kind of heard similar rumblings before and nothing's really come of it yet. So okay. uh, they may surprise me. But that's something to look forward <laughs> in the future. Is it would be like a happy, happy surprise if that one comes. Through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, yeah. Hey, compliance aids. Um, but but we'll <laughs> see what happens this year. So on that, and, and then the last one is okay. The OCC, which I don't want to say they've been more lax than the other agencies, but they've taken kind of a different approach to regulation and supervision. I would say uh, okay. than the other agencies. They really went to town last week, um, and by going to town, I mean they they started issuing orders and you know potential judgments against big banks, which was a little okay uh, surprising. Uh, the first one, and I mentioned this earlier, and why do we care about compliance? 
was against Citibank. So Citibank was violating the flood rules, the Bigger Waters flood rules. Um, what actually can we can we take just yeah. just a quick moment? Like, sure. uh, what what is that? I mean, is is that what it sounds like, or is yeah, that exactly something what it sounds like? So flood rules are if you have a home and it's in a flood zone and there's a loan on that home, that home is required to be covered by flood insurance. That's the oh, okay. that's the top level description of the flood rules. So um, what happens if somebody doesn't pay their flood insurance? Well, you the bank has to go out and buy flood insurance and place it on there manually, and that's known as forced placement. So that's the specific okay. that you Citibank got in trouble with. They essentially, what it looks like, it's kind of hard to tell the details based on the order, but it looks like they pawned everything off on the third-party vendor, and they weren't really checking what the third-party vendor was doing, and the third-party vendor wasn't basically placing flood insurance on these properties quickly enough. So it's mm. something that's pretty slight, but um, there you have it. It still cost the bank $18 million. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So uh, I think it was technically wow. 17.9 if you want to get you know super technical about it. So this is where that like each little <laughs> violation starts to add up really quickly. Yeah, exactly. So okay. kind of one of the things flood, blah, blah, blah. Eyelids are starting to drift $18 million. And you go, whoa. And suddenly we're talking about something that really hurts. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the wonderful world of, of compliance there. Um, another thing is Wells Fargo. Uh, the OCC clearly showed that it's not done with Wells Fargo. So uh, we all know Wells Fargo has a, a ton of trouble surrounding sort of institutionalized practices of opening dummy accounts and things like that and doing a lot of really deceptive behavior in order to boost sales numbers. And they were doing that for okay. years. Um, and in 2018, there was a half a million dollar uh, order from the OCC and then another half a million from the CFPB against Wells Fargo. Well, the OCC wasn't done. Uh, just last week, they issued $53.5 million in potential fines against executives. Wow. Yeah. $17.5 million of that went just against the uh, the former CEO. So Okay. I think I read a little bit about this. And did, didn't he uh, also get like banned from participating in, in a, he did. any you know, financial institutions in the future yeah, or forever, for some period of time, oh, forever, <laughs> forever, so <laughs> for life. Yeah. And, okay. And uh, my understanding of that order is it, it, you know, those are proposed judgments. Those haven't been finalized yet, but, um, you know, it, it's still pretty indicative of the fact that, uh, they're, they're going after them. So. Okay. Wow. Well, <laughs> okay. Great. Good. I think these are, these are great. I think, uh, these are great things to go over because I, I certainly, I mean, I noticed the Wells Fargo thing because I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but, um, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of this stuff. And so I'm glad that you're bringing that Absolutely. Up. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're also going to do a Q&A section, um, which I, I want to make sure that listeners know uh, that you can also submit questions for this. Um, again, we're going to have that email address at the uh, end of the episode, but uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions for James, he'll be answering some of those and, and we'll, we'll cultivate some internally, you know, some questions. So uh, what do you got for us, James? What are we gonna Okay. Do? So uh, a couple of, of compliance related scenarios and sort of um, my general guidance as to um, 
you know, how, how to handle these scenarios. I, you know, I should sort of reiterate that uh, we, we're not providing actual compliance advice here. It's just sort of informational in nature. Um, you know, please right. consult your compliance professionals, your, you know, both in-house and, you know, out-of-house uh, auditors or examiners or anybody like that if you have any compliance questions about these issues. But this is just sort of my take. And what I've seen has worked for other financial institutions in the past. So the, the okay. first scenario uh, is a, and it's phrased as a question, basically. Is a financial institution allowed to deny a loan solely because an applicant sexually harassed the loan officer during the, lo- the application process? The har- this, this is a real yeah, thing. This actually happened at a financial institution I was doing compliance consulting for. Uh, they had this exact oh. scenario. They did not know what to do. People were freaking out in the branch. It was a definite issue. Uh, and yeah, so so in, in this scenario, the harassment in question was witnessed by at least three other employees at the financial institution. Uh, and the applicant, who was the harasser, would have actually qualified for the loan they applied for based on their financials. So how do you handle that? Wow. So yeah, there's something called uh, ECOA or Reg B, uh, and sometimes it's also called fair lending. And essentially what that regulation says and the statute that gives rise to that regulation is you're not allowed to deny a loan to somebody on a prohibited basis. So those are the things that you think prohibited basis would be. So you're not allowed to do it based on their sex. You're not allowed to do it based on their gender. You're not allowed to do based on country of origin, ethnicity, um, religion, uh, yeah, I, I can't remember all the others off the top of my head, but those are those are sort of the big ones. So okay. uh, in this case, I assume like protected status is probably also and anything that falls under like the you know HR often talks about like protected status. Yeah, exactly. That, that's that's a that's a good uh, sort of overlap of of yeah what we're talking about with prohibited basis. It's kind of the same thing. Okay. So um, in this particular situation, uh, as they always say, uh, you know, it's quote unquote uh, impossible to prove a negative. So mm-hmm. you say, well, I denied them because they were sexually harassing my employees. I didn't deny them on a prohibited basis. Well, when you say you didn't deny them on a prohibited basis, I mean, you know, it, you, you basically have to prove the reason why you actually denied the person. So a lot of times when okay. scenarios like this arise, a financial institution says, well, we can't say it's because of their financials. So we have to approve them. There's no choice. And they okay. sort of get petrified and they freeze and they freak out and they say, oh, we have to. We have no choice. The Reg B requires us to approve them. And then we just have to take it if they're a harasser. And my position on that is honestly, that's ridiculous. Um, what you do have to do in a situation like this, you can absolutely deny. Clearly, this is not a prohibited basis if they're harassing and you've got all these other witnesses in the branch that see this going on. But what you do have to okay. do is you have to document and then you have to document and then you have to document some more. Uh, you know, I would recommend. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, whether or not you make that information public and accessible to the, the person who's doing the harassing, you know, I would chalk that up to a sort of risk determination, business decision. Um, you know, if, if you're worried they're going to flame you on social media, if you make that stuff available to them, I don't know. Um but, you know, sort of what I re- would recommend is just document it in some form that you, that you, the reason why you're denying them. And then just go ahead and deny them, you know? And then that's, that's essentially my take on it. Don't worry that 
I'm really glad to hear that that's that's the option to take because it would it would hurt me a little bit if if it was like yeah you just you know you just got to suck it up and take that one on the chin like that's how it is. yeah yeah <laughs> now obviously you can go too far with this if uh, an examiner comes into a bank right and it sees that 500 of the loans potential loans to Koreans were uh, denied because of sexual harassment obviously that. That would be suspect, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I mean, documenting is not going to get you everywhere. But if this is a one-off situation, you clearly document what's going on. I say you deny them, and then in the adverse action form, you just put, which is the form you're required to send out when you deny somebody a loan. The law requires them mm-hmm. a form and tell them why. You just put other, um, and then you know, in, in the other field, you just give a description of of what they did that you uh, and your counsel at your at your bank feels is you know, a good description to give. Um, and that's it. You wash your hands of it and, and you do not, you don't have to put up. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and then another uh, question, uh, sort of scenario that is based on a real event. A, a customer walked into a branch and started shouting at the top of her lungs about how the financial institution never does home loans for Koreans. She threatened to post the same comment online via social media, and then she stormed out of the branch. Is the financial institution required to do anything to document and or address this complaint? Uh, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I got to wonder how she even like knew this, right? Like, yeah. Had she taken a survey? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are interesting folks out there, um, you know, and some of them are justified. Some of them are not. And some of them they make kind of outlandish claims. Uh, another In another scenario that uh, I remember, uh, a woman came in and complained that the cookies weren't the cookies in the, the, the cookies in the lobby weren't the, the flavor that she liked. So she issued. Oh my gosh. Because that. So, I mean, you get not, not, oh, but I complaints can, on the same level, but. Well, I was going to say, I can totally see how this one get, would get really thorny yeah. because now here we're talking about someone's ethnicity. Right. Um, and that's like, you know, if it's real, then it's pretty serious. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it can sound frivolous, but so what, yeah. you know, and then dig into this. Yeah. One. So this, this is the, the kind doing? of thing where we really want to kind of want to do is y- your financial institution should have a dedicated team uh, who monitors like social media and, and those kinds of things for consumer complaints. That should be a part of your internal policies and procedures. And you should essentially ASAP notify those folks essentially to go to work on this and, and to look out for any sorts of concerns like that to look for maybe past comments from others that are reflective of what this is. Uh, and w- one reason that you really want to do that other than quote unquote damage control is there are certain regulatory requirements where you have to put those complaints on file. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. the CRA, which we already talked about. So with the CRA, they say, if you have a complaint like this and your institution gets it and it's written down and you're a bank, then you have to put that in your CRA public file. Uh, now, in, in this okay. instance, she came into the branch and shouted it at the top of her lungs, so it's not written down. So technically <laughs> not required, at least yet, to go into the uh, public file. But obviously, if she then turns around and goes on the bank's Facebook page and starts writing this stuff, it might be different. So um, what you really need to do is, is take a proactive approach if you if the if the financial institution in, in this scenario knows the woman, uh, if she's a current customer, you know, reach out to her uh, by diplomatic means and try to talk mm-hmm. through the issues. Um, and then, yeah, just really monitor social media and sort of be vigilant about that. And don't just look at future behavior. Look at the, the past behavior as well. Look at past 
uh, comments from others. So, yeah, yeah. great. Wow, <laughs> James. Ah, this has been a great episode. This is a, uh, an awesome kickoff for compliance. But you know what? I'm going to have to learn how to say it because we're going to do more <laughs> of these compliance pagoda. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to doing this series with you. So thank you so much for your time and for uh, everything you brought to us today to talk about. I really enjoyed it. Good deal, it. Zach. Uh, you're welcome. I, I think that listeners will. I appreciate well. that uh, spending the time with you and uh, compliance rocks, everybody. Man, it totally <laughs> rocks. Compliance rocks, everybody. Uh, you can take that one home with you. So, good deal. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship or representation regarding any potential engagement. The information provided in the podcast is not intended as legal, accounting, audit, or other professional advice. If such advice is required, please consult with your own professional advisor or auditor. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. It helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at kasasa.com.